talk. This is going to be our sixth episode, and uh, this time around we're going to talk a little bit about water quality. So first we're going to start off, we're going to talk about Flint, the crisis in Flint that's been going on, that a lot of us have seen in the news, heard in the news, definitely had known it was going on, knew that Obama declared a state of emergency, but you didn't really understand what was going on, or why there was so much inaction, or why, you know, we couldn't get clean water to this American city. So we're going to clear some of that up, and I've got some links, this really awesome PBS documentary for you guys to check out if you're more interested in that stuff. After that, we're going to talk a little bit about our own quality of water here in Grand Forks. The Red River Valley, um, I have a drinking water report from the city of Grand Forks telling us a little bit about what is in our water, where our water comes from, what our water sources are. But then I also have this article that was published just last August um, in the West Fargo Pioneer about how the water quality isn't actually all that great, and that on the Minnesota side, um, officials are saying that it's poor, and, you know, we want to figure out what's going on there. If we're saying we have drinkable water, then the Minnesota side saying we don't, so where, where is that discrepancy? Don't worry, people. Um, I doubt that we have lead in our water here in Grand Forks, but we're just going to kind of talk about it in the same kind of spectrum as the Flint water crisis. And then if we have time, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the North Dakota pipeline protests that had been going on. Now it's a couple years back, but uh, essentially we're going to talk a little bit about why that was such a big deal, why it went on for months and months and months, and why the tribes in that area, you know, felt they were justified and, um, you know, the demolishing of their sacred grounds and the worry that um, the oil spills would contaminate the nearby water supply. You know, essentially we had decided, I think, to put that pipeline somewhere near Bismarck, and there was uproar. People were worried that it was going to contaminate the Missouri River. And then when they wanted to move the pipeline further down to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, the people there were obviously worried upward. The exact same reasons the people in Bismarck had been, but they were met with uh, considerable pushback. So we're going to explore that a little bit, too, if we have time. And then next episode, Podcast 7 for Sustainability Talk, I'm actually going to focus a little bit on environmental ethics. I've been taking a course through UND, Environmental Ethics, and we've been talking a little bit about our philosophies and how we view the environment. And essentially, you know, our philosophies, our worldview, how we view the environment, dictates how we are going to use the resources available available to us and how we're going to be a part of that system. You know, are we going to be humans? Are we going to dominate that system? Are we going to live um, side by side with non-human um, living things and kind of share? Or are we going to be a stewardship, take care of it, utilize it for our own purposes? So we're going to explore a couple of those different kind of ethical theories just to kind of approach, you know, how do you see the environment? How do we see the environment um, from the lens of economy? We have to think about um, especially when we talk about water rights, is that water, I'm sorry, water quality, is that water um, is an undeniable need for human life to flourish. Obviously, if you don't have any water, you will die. And so we could argue that water is a right. It's a human right. It's not something that can be given or taken to you based on your status. It's something that you need to survive. And essentially by saying that, then we're saying, okay, but we come back to the water quality issue where we talk about, well, it costs money 
And that's a, a part of the reason that Flint had so many failures is that it costs money to clean the water if the water is contaminated. And it costs money to get water to the places that it needs to be. And so water is a right. You need it for life. But it also still is going to cost something to get it somewhere to the people who need it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about ethics and how we view the environment economically. We're going to talk about it socially. You know, there's people who see the environment as purely to be utilized for human purposes. People who see the environment as, you know, this transcendental sublime kind of experience where one is viewing the environment instrumentally. Instrumentally meaning that it's it's it helps you get to something else. And then the other side of that is viewing the environment intrinsically, meaning it it matters because it is. It it has value in and of itself. It's not a means to an end. And so we're going to explore a little bit of those philosophical theories, and we're going to kind of tie sustainability in with every, everything we've been talking about so far with sustainable development, um, sustainable technologies, and stuff like that. So why don't we get right into it? We're going to talk a little bit about Flint to start off with here, and... You know, a lot of us have heard about Flint in the news. I know I already said that already, but I know personally, when I didn't know any actual information about Flint, I was kind of surprised um, that, you know, this community had could go so long, it began in 2014, so almost three years, without clean water and for no one to be doing anything about it. And we actually watched a documentary in my Earth System Science and Policy class the other day, and it's called Poisoned Water. I'm going to provide the link for you guys. It's on uh, PBS, and it's one of the episodes they provide that is a documentary series. But anyway, it kind of starts um, at Ground Zero, which is uh, a featured home, um, a woman's home in a documentary who had, you know, the story begins, she takes her children to the doctor and their twins, and they're not meeting their growth uh, percentiles. They're a lot smaller than they are, and essentially... Um, you know, they're not as developed. And so she wanted to understand what had been going on. And through this, we found out that lead, had, that the children of Flint were being lead poisoned, essentially. And lead poisoning is extremely, extremely bad for you. There's been studies that show, uh, actually, when they did the Flint studies, they took a group of children from Flint and uh, another group of children who had not been previously exposed to lead. And their IQ levels, which I think for... A group of 10-year-olds, I want to say that was the study, um, should have been about around 100. And they, the, Flint the Flint students were actually around 70. So to be almost 30, about 30 IQ points down is just one of the hazards of lead poisoning. Um, obviously, it stunts your growth. It's uh, essentially when you consume lead, your body consumes it and treats it like it's calcium. So it... Um, responds to neurons and in within your bones and your joints it responds to uh, calcium which runs in between there and so the lead fills it up no more calcium can get through and that's why it ends up stunting growth and it ends up affecting intelligence and things going on in your brain but essentially we found out through this that the water was being poisoned with lead now the water source the city of Flint had switched to a different water source um, over from the detour from the Detroit water source to something else or either to the Detroit water source um, from another one. But essentially they had changed their water source and through doing this was trying to save their economy money. It makes total sense. Um, I also have an NPR article here for you that details the steps that went on, 
of what went on with Flint. And, you know, right away it says that Flint, 40% of people there live in poverty. And so obviously the government can't function very well if this is their base. And so, yeah, it makes sense to want to save money in the long run. That seems like it would benefit everyone. However, by switching over to this water source, um, throughout the course, however, what ended up happening is that it ended up being contaminated through uh, sewage. Raw sewage was getting into the water. And we put a lot of um, sewage into our water. I mean, obviously, that's how we use our, our plumbing or toilet system. We actually waste a lot of water to getting rid of waste. And the whole point of being able to do that is that we're then able to take that water, recycle it, treat it with chemicals in order to get rid of those bacteria and those diseases that live in that water from the raw sewage and from the contamination and exposure. And so in switching over this water system, Flint, to save money, stopped using um, a certain water treatment chemical. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it for you guys, but I think it's in one of the articles here. But they essentially stopped using, and I know for sure it's in the, in the documentary that I, um, I'm going to link for you on PBS, but essentially um, one of these one of these water uh, treatment chemicals is what helps the pipes build a protective coating because the lead pipe, we use lead pipes to um, take from the main valve to an individual home. The main valve is often made out of iron. It's huge. It goes under your main road 10, 10 to 14 feet in length and width. And the individual lines that go to the homes are going to be lead. And it seems counterintuitive, just change the, change the piping, whatever it is, but there's something like 20,000 lead pipe lines underneath Flint. And so it wasn't really a practical solution to change the lead pipes line. So what happens when you add this certain treatment, water treatment to the water, is that when it comes from the main line into the individual line, it creates a coating called a scale that's on the inside of the lead pipe. And the scale essentially acts as a barrier between the water and the pure lead. And the scale itself is made out of lead, <clears throat> but it's a lot less than what would you get than what you would get if you were exposed directly to the actual pipe. And essentially what was happening, because they weren't putting these chemicals into the water, and I just want to point out here, chemical is, water is a chemical. I'm, I'm talking about treatment chemicals that are needed, not necessarily contaminants or bad chemicals, but um, chemicals that need to be added to the water. And you'll see here, for example, in order to protect us from worse contaminants. And so essentially, um, because they weren't adding this chemical, the water that was flowing through the mains was starting to erode the scale, and the scale was starting to break off into the water. And the wa the scale, like I said, is made of lead. So the lead is more and more contaminating the water and contaminating the water. The scale is breaking down to almost nothing when there's no barrier between the water and the lead itself. And then the reason a lot of um, you'll see a lot of videos is that uh, and that the water is brown is because once the scale has eroded entirely from the pipe, the, you know, the brownness isn't from the leadness, it's from the iron, which is then coming in from the, from the uh, master main, master main, that is made out of iron, so that's why you're getting that brown color, that oxidization. Not because of the lead. The lead could be in your water, and your water could be crystal clear, and that's why we need these chemicals, because we're not always going to be able to see the issue, and that is what prompted 
you know, for the longest time, lead was in these people's water. But it wasn't until we had this oxidization of the iron that showed in the water that people were thinking to get it tested and began, began this whole thing. So essentially, lead is getting into the water. But then we're also putting other chemicals into the water, thinking that we have the correct balance, and we don't. So the thing I'm talking about here is that um, what happened during this time is that uh, various people got this disease called Legionnaire's disease. And it's from Legionella, which is um, from raw sewage. And so essentially we add chlorine to our water to kill that off, to kill that harmful viral bacteria. But because we didn't have the scale in place, the lead was interacting directly with the chlorine, breaking it apart, and it no longer was effective in getting rid of that Legionella. And so that was our biggest issue there was that we were adding chemicals into the water thinking it was protecting us because we didn't really know that we needed, that they needed this um, underlying chemical to make things work. And so that's, when we talk about sustainability, this is a perfect example of it. It's that the system is so interlocked and so intertwined that every little part of it has a purpose and it makes sense with the rest of it and it has to be there and it has to work that way and be that way in order to run sustainably. And that's why we want to, when we think about sustainable development, think about sustainability for the future, we want to be able to have our natural systems working in place and to mimic those and to enhance those and to make those work the way that they're supposed to work even better. So while this is going on with the Flint crisis, like I said earlier, uh, Flint is a uh, 40% of the people live in poverty and it's a largely, a largely African American community. And during this time, obviously um, these families were beginning doing testing on their own water. They had uh, researchers from universities across the United States coming in, focused on it, dedicated to it. And officials were not giving them any, any leeway. The officials essentially weren't stepping up, weren't, weren't saying, you know, we messed this up, we're going to add this in. They were essentially saying, you know, we tested the water ourselves and it was totally fine. And when these researchers were reading through these uh, instructions they had given people to test water to take water samples and send it in the government, it was such a, it, it was a cheat, you know, they were telling people to run their water for five minutes at a time. And so, you know, obviously when you're running the water through the water that's been sitting in there is going to get filtered out. They were saying, you know, don't use your water for this or use this for this. And so essentially they were trying to cheat the system, get around it. And really in the end, it was an economic decision that ended up with people paying for their lives for it. And so that's why I really have to take seriously. And by the way, Flint switched back over to the regular water source, which had the correct water treatment in it. And the water is slowly recovering. However, we can't tell the damage that's been done to the people of this community. We can't, we can't begin to imagine because lead poisoning for children, especially in pregnant women, um, essentially humans that are still in development, uh, their lives have been forever stunted because of this, decision for economics, which is rooted in good intentions, you know, to save money for the community seems like a good idea. But the problems came from within that. And I just want to address, you know, sustainability. We also talk about social justice. There is a point in this entire investigation where a uh, high level EPA member, uh, when all these emails 
had come out um, exposing some of these cover-ups, a high-loving, a high-ranking member of the EPA had sent an email to someone asking if Flint was the kind of community that they actually even wanted to go to bat for. And so this ties in with our idea of, you know, the marginalized minorities and marginalized communities and how we can't live sustainably if there are people in the world or in our country even who are, be treating, who are being treated like second-class citizens, like they're not enough and like they shouldn't be given the same and that they shouldn't be considered the same. And we're going to talk about it a little bit too next week, but this is kind of um, appreciating all life as having a purpose, as being important and not viewing ourselves in, in, as inferior to other beings. And this is a perfect example of a lot of officials who wanted to cover up a situation which affected a poor you know, African-American community and they wanted to cover up the fact that they didn't even really care to fix the entire thing. And then these people went three, you know, almost four years without clean water. So that leads us into our own water quality here in Grand Forks, where the Red River Valley is, which is where we get most of our drinking water. And I just wanted to go over a little bit of our drinking quality because, oh, you know, you can look at the Red River. And I grew up in Bismarck where the Missouri, you know, albeit it's a lot bigger, it's a lot stronger, you know, look out into it. I would definitely wouldn't take a glass of water and drink it, but I look at it and I feel safe going into it, comfortable being on it. And I don't feel like the water itself is contaminated. However, like I said earlier, lead is invisible. There are some things that you you just can't see. And so maybe the land site is better. Landscape is better for me than for here in Grand Forks. But when I look at the Red River Valley, I always just make this joke that it's a stupid river because it's going the wrong way. Um, you know, it connects up into Canada, into the Arctic, into the or into the Hudson Bay, then into the Arctic. So another example of how we're all interconnected and we all have a purpose here and we're all in some way, you know, there's this cycle that we all play a part of that goes around and round. And anyway, when you look at the Red River, it's brown, it's dirty. I've been told it's dangerous. I'm an avid kayaker. Personally, me and my boyfriend are. We each have our own kayaks. And I was really sad um, when I found out that, yes, you can go to the lake, but up here the river isn't quite as uh, manageable or navigable as it was in Bismarck growing up in, in, in with the Missouri River. But Anyway, like I was saying, you know, it's dirty, like you can look right at it, it's brown. In fact, I did a project last semester where I had a group, a couple group members and I were talking about Red River wallet, water quality and uh, doing river cleanup proposals, and we went and got our own water from the Cooley on the University of North Dakota's campus and from the water from the Red River Valley, and we just looked at it and it was just, it was grody, it was gross. And obviously that water is untreated, you know, you wouldn't drink it just right out of the, right out of the glass. But it brings us back around to water quality and treatment. And a lot of people misunderstanding like what goes into the water, what they should pay for for what goes into the water, and then the government trying to cut corners and save money and not understand the consequences of not keeping treat not having a treatment chemical in the water. Now I have a document, it's from the Grand Forks um, city government, and it's essentially a document that tells us about our quality of drinking water. And this is from 2016. This is the most recent one I could find that was accessible on their website. And, you know, I'm looking at people who are in these pictures on here. I'll post it for you. But they're in kayaks or paddle boards or whatever, and they're in the river, but it's just not something I'd ever want to do. It's just too brown. I don't know. Maybe I'll try it. I don't know. Maybe someone will convince me. But I just wanted to go over a little bit of this that, you know, essentially 
we're found that our water is to standard. But, okay, here's, here's my thing. Do you want your water to be to standard? Or do you want your water to be crystal clear and clean as possible? Obviously, you want it clean as possible. But the problem with looking at this economically is that because a government is set out to, you know, I mean, it's not a business, but it operates with revenue and profit, the government wants to spend as little as possible here. So getting water to standard is spending as little as possible, maybe even a little bit more. But at any rate, getting water to standard is where they're going to stop spending money. I personally, as a taxpayer, I would love to pay more if that meant that there was going to be even more filtration, even more, even more contaminants taken out or even more things to be done. But it's important to note here, you could just get a water filter at $25. But which I forgot to mention in Flint, and if you do watch the PBS documentary, there's this really, really, uh, I'll go over it now, but it's a kind of a sad story where these researchers were going around calling the homes of the people who had the highest amount of lead in their waters. And they were telling them, you know, essentially the way that you can combat this is right now you need to get a water filter. It'll filter out 99.9% .9 of the contaminants. Essentially, that is going to be your best bet right now to get the lead out of your water. And this this uh, grad student called this one lady and told her about the water filter and how much it would cost. And the lady was like, well, I'm on a fixed income and I won't be able to afford $25 for another two months. So, yeah, you can just go get a water filter. But at the end of the day, that is a luxury. It's not something that every single person can just go out and buy. And $25 might not mean something to the richest person, but $25 definitely means a lot to people who live on a fixed income, who live in impoverished areas, and who don't have a lot of who don't have a lot themselves. So, moving on anyway. I want to talk about a little bit and you can read this yourself. It's it's kind of it's kind of scary, but you know, it, the document itself does a little bit to calm me down a little bit, but it, it's, I just want to read this for you guys. It's the contaminants that may be present in our own source water. And our source water comes from the Red River and the Red River Lake, Red Lake River. And let's see here, I think they had one more. No, so those are going to be the water sources that Grand Forks gets their water from. But anyway, possible contaminants that may be present in source water. So if they want to bring it up and they say may be in it, I, I bet it's in. I bet it's in there. So the first is going to be microbial contaminants, such as viruses and bacteria, which may come from sewage treatment plants, septic systems, agriculture, livestock operations, and wildlife. Okay, so that's going to be um, the, essentially the raw sewage runoff that we had talked about in Flint. So, you know, hopefully we use chlorine in our water and our lead pipes aren't being eroded because that can call, cause Legionnaire from Legionellus. The second is going to be inorganic contaminants, such as salts and metals, which can be naturally occurring or result from urban stormwater runoff, industrial or domestic wastewater discharges, oil and gas production, mining, or farming. So this is going to address a lot of the uh, fossil fuel um, businesses around here and their extraction, like what kind of impact they have on water quality. You don't think about it a lot. You think about seeps and you think about emissions. But they actually do use water. Um, like I said earlier, we use water to get rid of a lot of our waste. And so they do use water as part of their processes. And so water contamination results of that. Next one here is going to be pesticides and herbicides, which may come a variety of sources, such as agriculture, urban stormwater runoff, and residential uses. So 
Um, this is going to be a non-point source form of pollution in our water, which is essentially that it's dispersed from a large area and can't really control it. And when farmers around here, especially during beet season or harvest season and stuff like that, spraying chemicals and herbicides on their plants, not only is that getting into your body later when you eat it, it's getting into the soil, degrading the nutrients, it's getting into the animals that surround it, and it's getting into your water. So next is going to be organic chemical contaminants. So this includes synthetic and volatile organic chemicals, which are byproducts of industrial processes and petroleum production, and can also come from gas stations, urban stormwater runoff, and septic systems. So I thought that was a little bit a little bit interesting. They're trying to um, differentiate from uh, micro, microbial contaminants, but it kind of sounds like they're going to come, kind of come from the same things and the same as uh, inorganic contaminants coming from the same kind of runoff. Um, the last one that, like, I read and I was kind of freaked out by is radioactive contaminants. What? What? Grand Forks? What? There's radioactive contaminants in my water? <laughs> like, what? So, essentially, this this says, uh, which can be naturally occurring, okay, or the result of oil and gas production and mining activities. Okay, so, you know, there it is. Oil production, gas, and mining activities. But it could be naturally occurring, it could be. I don't know. It doesn't tell me how it naturally occurs. It just says, you know, it says as water travels over the surface of the land or through the ground, it dissolves naturally occurring. It dissolves naturally occurring minerals and in some cases radioactive material. So what radioactive material lines is in, <laughs> is in our water source? That's what I want to ask it. <laughs> That's what I want to know. So I just kind of wanted to go over that a little bit with you guys and that essentially, um, I have both of these articles up here there for you, but this other one from the West, Far West Fargo Pioneer um, is from Minnesota officials, and this is just from August uh, the August 2nd, 2017, um, is that uh, the water quality is not, not that good. It's generally poor. And so a lot of uh, researchers and testers around the area, around the Moorhead area, found excessive levels of E. coli bacteria and suspended solids from field runoff and erosion. So that's going to go back. We're going to talk about, you know, the microbial contaminants, the inorganic, the organic, um, and then again, the herbicides and pesticides. So I'm going to post that article here for you guys. I'm going to post the PBS documentary. I'm almost out of time here, so that means I'm not going to get to talking about um, the Standing Rock Sioux, um, tri those tribes and their protests with the North Dakota Pipeline. But in my next podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about ethics, and I'll bring it up a little bit then because, um, again, when we're talking about sustainability and ethics, we're going to talk about this marginalized community that kind of ends up getting the short end of the stick. So we talked about with Flint where, you know, even high-ranking members of the EPA didn't really care about the situation going on in Flint and had said it in emails. And that's kind of what was going on here in North Dakota is that Bismarck, which is predominantly white, said, nope, we don't want the pipeline near us. People were like, okay, that makes sense. And then they moved it further south, and the natives who were there said we didn't want it. But because that is a marginalized community that experiences racism and stuff like that, there wasn't as much of an outcry. And, I mean, I mean, there was an outcry, but there wasn't as much of an outcry that prompted the oil um, – I can't even remember the name of it, but we'll we'll talk about them in the next podcast. But pro there wasn't enough as a, an outcry that prompted the company to change their mind again. They were like, "No, we're going to do this here. We don't care about you." And that's kind of a harsh reality, but that's kind of what they were saying. 
So anyway, thank you so much, you guys, for listening to me talk. I didn't have a guest, so you didn't get a break from me this week. But I really appreciated it. You guys uh, listening in, um, water quality, really, really interesting stuff. I feel like I could talk for hours, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. So thanks so much for listening, you guys. And we'll see you for Podcast 7, all right?